of our study in church history on the Synod of Dort. Um, week one was like three weeks ago, so that's, go back, listen online if you'd like. But I, I, I think I gave you all some homework, if you were here, was like to actually read the canons of Dort. I don't know if anybody, anybody raised, anybody, anybody oh good, somebody did that. Um, hopefully after today you make the commitment to do that some in the next couple weeks. I think you'll be blessed by the, the rich theology and it'll propel you uh, to worship. So please do that. Not, it's not an assignment or anything. It's just a suggestion by me. Um, let's, if you guys, now that I've got you in one place and sitting, why don't you stand and we'll read God's Word. We're going to read Romans 8, 28 till the end of the chapter. So follow along with me and hear the words of the Lord and then we'll pray. And after I pray, you can sit down. So Romans 8, 28. And we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And, just, and those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him, up, gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and Lord, our desire today, at least my desire, Lord, is to uh, see you high and lifted up, and to see you, uh, Lord, worthy of all of our praise Oh, Lord, as we look at the doctrines that were expounded uh, at the Synod of Dort and the resulting canons of Dort that we can still review today, Lord, I pray that we would see your character, Lord, your desire to save sinners, to draw people to yourself, Lord. Lord, that is done exclusively because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus on the cross, and for that we give you praise. Oh, Lord, may we not find any boast in ourselves but, Lord, may our boast be in you and the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. And, Lord, for that, I give you praise. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, um, consider these things and, um, and worship you more because of them. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Have a seat. All right. So here we are. Uh, the, those of you that weren't here last time, I'm going to keep referencing you. Uh, so, if I see you, I'm just going to point you out, but that's okay. 
The reason I picked this topic is, is because I like to celebrate anniversaries, and um, the, the Synod of Dort was convened first in the Netherlands in 1618. Today is, this year is 2018. That makes this a very round 400th anniversary from the beginning of the convening of the conference that was held at the Synod of Dort. So that's, that's why, but also I think it's important for us to study, and those of you who don't know, I always teach on church history. It's my passion. I really enjoy it. I love all of history, just so you know. So if you ask me what I'm reading, it will be some work of history, not always church history. But church history is one of my favorite topics. I uh, went to college uh, not knowing what I wanted to be when I grew up. That's why I got into insurance. That's my profession now. But I got a degree in history thinking I would teach, uh, maybe teach and coach. Um, But the Lord had other plans for me. And I'm blessed by the fact that I've been given the opportunity to teach history here in this church. And I really enjoy it. And uh, I, I, I am passionate about it, and I hope that passion um, is apparent and is helpful to you. So, the Synod of Dort convened in 1618 in the Netherlands. Uh, the last time we talked, I talked about some famous things dealing with the Netherlands. I actually used the screen, which I'm not using today. But the reason that the Synod of Dort even came into place, when I say Synod, it's just a council, a group of church leaders coming together to make some decisions around certain topics. Um, in the 1600s, there was a man by the name of Jacob, Jacobus Arminius um, who became a, an influential uh, teacher and scholar in the Netherlands, and he was uh, expounding certain doctrines that were, that were contrary to that of the Reformed Church in the Netherlands. So the, we have the Reformation in the 1500s, In the 1600s, or in the middle of the 1500s and into the 1600s, the church in the Netherlands is is becoming more and more reformed. So that means they're influenced by John Calvin's work in Geneva, um, and even somewhat John Knox's influence in Scotland. These things kind of converge on a reformed faith in the Netherlands. Um, Some of our spiritual ancestors in America settled here at some point, and they were members of the Dutch Reformed Church. So we kind of have some spiritual heritage in the United States from this group of people. So, uh, so when we talk about Reformed, we're talking about the idea of these are, these are people that are direct descendants and followers of John Calvin, okay? So there's, there's, there's some Calvinist leanings to their theology. They are Calvinists. Um, I like to refer to them as Reformed. It seems a little softer, okay? Uh, so, that's, so when I say Reformed, you can go ahead and think that. But the theology is Calvinistic in nature, but the, the, the main things going on at the Synod of Dort is the doctrines of grace are kind of talked about, and they're, they're uh, written out in uh, these canons that are resulting from the Synod of Dort, okay? So that's where we get the five points of Calvinism, and that's what we're going to talk about today is the first two points. Uh, but this guy named Arminius uh, comes on to the... Uh, the stage, you could say, in the Netherlands. He dies in 1609. But in 1609, some of his followers uh, begin to become a little bit more outspoken with their uh, theology and thoughts, and they put together um, kind of a, um, a summary of the main arguments against the Reformed faith 
that Arminius was presenting, okay? So they come up with what's called, they, these guys come up with what's called, the, they are the remonstrants. So you have this probably in your handout. So they oppose uh, the reformed view of salvation. And they did it in several ways. This is in your handout. This is just, so they came up with five primary points. The remonstrants came up with these five primary points. And this is what they are. And this is just in summary because we talked about them some last week, but we'll, we'll get into these in detail. But just so for summary, um, they oppose the Reformed faith by these five points. One, they believe that election and condemnation are conditioned upon the foreseen faith or unbelief of fallen man. So uh, election is conditioned on uh, man. Two, the atonement was made universally for all, including those who refused to believe, and the effects of Christ's redemption depend upon man's believing or not. So that's, that's what they believed about the atonement. You probably are thinking in your mind, I think I know some other counterpoints to this, and that's what, that's what the canons will spell out. The third is man is only partially depraved and still has a free will capable of submitting to God's truth. Now, if you're thinking, okay, I, Matt, I know the five points of Calvinism, and maybe you do. Number one is, it's the tulip, right? So that's the acrostic. Well, number one is total depravity. So that we actually have changed that to make it look like tulip versus the order of what the canons talk about. So the, 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 the total depravity is the response uh, to what the remonstrance said. So that's number three. Number four, the remonstrance says that God's grace can be resisted. So if God's election, electing grace, they believe... Uh, it could be resisted, and man could choose not to pursue God. And then number five, and this is, uh, there was, this is their statement about perseverance. It says, there is a possibility that man, having chosen for God, can also in like manner fall away from God's grace. All right? So let me just make a caveat here. I'm not making a, any uh, major judgments on Arminian theology in the 21st century. I'm talking about what it was here. Now, you're going to see a lot of traces in current modern-day uh, Arminian theology from this, but my sole purpose is to say this is what was at issue in the culture at that time, and this is the response from the Reformed Church. I think that's important for us to look at. And what I want to do is point you to what the response from the Reformed Church and how important it is that the church is wrestling with these things, okay, to come up with a, a definite idea of what uh, the Scriptures say. And I hope that leads you to worship, to holy living, uh, to a life that wants to please the Lord, because I think that's, that's the heart behind the canons of Dort. So, I keep talking outside of my notes, and I just need to follow my notes. Um, so, the Reformed response, though, so, so the, the, uh, the Reformed church in the Netherlands didn't just say, hey, I'd like to come up with a really cool acrostic I could use for tulip. And, uh, and then I could uh, formulate our doctrine that way. No, their doctrine is formulated through crisis. They're concerned about the unity of the church, and they need to come together to protect the theological unity of the church. So that's what they're doing. Prior to the uh, Synod of Dort, they had responded to these guys, but they didn't write it out in as clear detail as they do at the Synod of Dort. And this is what they say in response to each of the preceding points. They say, one, election is unconditional. 
and depending only on the sovereign choice of God. Uh, two, and just bear with me on the language here, we're going to spell out all this as we go forward. The atonement is limited to the elect. A definite redemption was made at the cross. Three, man is depraved and has no ability to contribute to his own salvation or to, the merit, or to merit the merits of Christ. Four, God's grace is irresistible. And then five, the saints will persevere in the faith, being kept by the power of God, and their salvation is certain. Okay, those are the responses from the Reformed, and then we'll spell that out. So they then meet in the city of Dorchek in the Netherlands in 1618 and 1619, where they write the canons of Dort. I did mention last week several other things that happened at this council, um, and you can remember those or look back on that, but it wasn't just exclusively about this, but this was the primary topic. Um, This was an international assembly of Reformed Christians. So the, the, the nature of the argument was in the Dutch church. So remember Dutch, Netherlands, Holland, kind of all the same. There's all these words that kind of all mean the same thing. But the Dutch church is, they're worried about the cohesion and the unity of the church. Um, But because the Arminians didn't trust, uh, the followers of Arminius didn't trust the Reformed church leaders, the Reformed church leaders invited believer, uh, Reformed church leaders from Germany, from France, from Scotland, and from England. So that makes it more of a, an international flair to it. So these guys are helping to make sure that the Reformed Church is not, not doing things out of bounds with orthodoxy based on their views. Okay? So it was an international assembly. I read one person that said it was an ecumenical assembly. That's not true. They didn't invite the Lutherans. They didn't invite the Roman Catholics. They didn't invite other... They, they invited the Reformed. So they invited those that would help them. Uh, and the uh, followers are Arminius the remonstrants, uh, were invited to attend as well. Uh, they were not, they were the defendants of the trial, though. They weren't like sitting here, hey, give us all your points. No, they were trying their opinions and comparing it to what they believe truth to be. So the result of the Synod of Dort was the Canons of Dort, which outlined the, res- the Reformed response to the remonstrants. Now, there's more to Reformed theology than just those, the five points of Calvinism. But that's exclusively what they were talking about at that point. Uh, The canons of Dort make up one-third of what's called the three forms of unity for the Dutch, for the Reformed Church. The other two aspects of that are the Belgic Confession and then the Heidelberg Catechism. So those those three things are kind of the the, uh, uh, foundational doctrinal documents of the Reformed Church. And the canons were written... Uh, primarily to help believers to worship and to grow in holiness and to glorify God. So that, that is the goal, and you can see that as you read through the canons. All right, so there are, so that's what we're going to talk about now as we go forward. We're going to talk about two of the major head points, or two of the major heads of the canons today, and then next week we'll talk about the other two. So that's where we're going. Everybody understand? Okay, and let's get going. All right, so there are four main points in the canons. Um, Within each of those main points, there's two primary sections. There are what they call articles, and those are, um, this is what we believe about this topic, and what I've done is given you each heading 
for the article. And you can make little notes. You don't have enough room, probably. Uh, but I've also given you, there's some longer sections in your notes that I'm going to be reading those entire sections. So it'd be, I thought it'd be beneficial to you to be able to review those. So there's articles, and then there's rejections of errors. Okay, so that's in each of the four points, they have those things. Uh, so let's get to the first point, which is divine election in reprobation. So if you want to follow along with your understanding of Calvinist doctrine, this is unconditional election. Um, and we'll talk about this um, going forward. So let's, talk, let's first talk about the remonstrance position. Previously, I gave you the statement that the remonstrants believe that election and condemnation are conditioned upon the foreseen faith or unbelief in fallen man. And here's just some headers about what, or some subtopics about that. Um, they believe that God's election is always conditioned on man's faith and his ability to persevere in that faith. So man's work along with God's work. Um, God has not decreed or decided to elect anyone to eternal life apart from man's choice. God's election is based on man's preceding obedience or disobedience. This is the Arminian view. Um, they state that God is not in absolute control of salvation for the sinner. They, they, they are holding to the freedom of man to come to God in, in man's, um, the, the freedom of man's ability to do that. So that's, that's kind of the picture of, uh, of the remonstrance position, that God's grace is given to people based on man coming to God. Okay, so it's not God coming to man, it's man coming to God. And that within man, there is the ability to come to God. God has given that to them. That is their position. So knowing that that's their position, let's talk about what the reform view of election is in the canons of Dort. Um, I cannot stress for you enough that the, the, when we look at like confessions and things like that, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith. We refer to those guys as the Westminster Divines. It's a really cool little thing to refer to them as. I cannot find a really good name for the, the, the guys that wrote Dort, okay? So the best thing I could come up with is the Dortian Fathers. But that seems almost, uh, I don't know. But maybe I'll refer to them as the Dortian Fathers just for fun. Um, but the guys that wrote these articles were not trying to expound cold, dead theology. This was life-giving, and it was their hope that the, their parishioners would find life, and they would be propelled to worship God because of this theology, okay? So when I say, hey, you should read the Canons of Dort, I think you'll really enjoy it. I, I really do. I think you'll be like, wow! And, they, and the, the scripture that they, they annotate uh, the Canons with is... Uh, is excellent, so it's showing that it's pointing to the authority of God in His Word, and I would encourage, I can't say that enough, read them, like Tonia did. You raised your hand. Um, so, the, the writers of Dort were concerned about uh, the growth of their church in holiness, humility, gratefulness, in awe-inspired worship. They did not see any room for pride in the believer. There are 19, no, 18 articles about election. 18 articles and then nine rejection of errors. One author, I said, this is a vigorous and comprehensive response to the remonstrance. 
So it's vigorous because there's 19 articles. Um, if you download the Canons of Dort, which you can do online, it's about 25 pages, just so you know. So this makes up about five or six of them. Um, article one. So I, all I'm going to do is we're going to talk about each of the articles. I'll have you refer to some scriptures as we go, um, just to see where they're coming from with that. Article one about God's election, divine election, is it highlights God's right to condemn all people. All men are sinners and deserving of God's judgment. And God would not be unjust to condemn all mankind for their sin if that was his will. So that's where they start. Okay? God's holiness and his, his uh, justice that's deserved for mankind. But Article 2 then says, uh, obviously he's referencing in, in Article 1, uh, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Um, and the wages of sin is death. Um, Article 2 gets into the manifestation of God's love, uh, referring to 1 John 4, 9, which says, in this way God's love was made manifest. He sent Jesus so that we may live in him. And John 3, 16 as well. So God sent his only son to save sinners. And this is the biblical pattern for redemptive history. God is not obligated to save sinners, but out of his love, he does save sinners. <clears throat> so the remonstrance initial argument is about God's decree of salvation. Um, but the, the, the writers of the canons of Dort want to outline the fact that man is sinful. Um, but, and God is full of both justice and love. You might be surprised that Article 3 in a Calvinistic document talks about the preaching of the gospel. I mean, this is not, this is not hyper-Calvinism in the canons of Dort. Um, so they talk about the necessity of the preaching of the gospel. They talk about Romans 10, how will they hear without a preacher? Um, God mercifully has sent messengers to call men to repentance and faith in Christ crucified. Article 3 of this document. Praise the Lord. We have uh, a responsibility to preach the gospel to all men and all women and all children. Article 4 details a twofold response to the gospel. So you can either believe or not believe. That's the, that's, there's two responses to the gospel. And the warning for those that don't believe is that God's wrath abides. That's the word in this. God's wrath abides on the unbeliever. We like to talk about abiding in Christ as believers, but as a non-believer, the wrath of God abiding on you, that's serious. Um, so that's one response. The other response is to believe. And so those who receive the gospel are delivered from God's wrath and destruction and receive the gift of eternal life. Article 5, the sources of unbelief and faith. This is where they want to talk about who God is. God is perfectly holy. He is not sinful. And they say God is not the cause of unbelief in man, but man is the cause of unbelief in man, just like any other sin. God has not caused man to sin. The source of faith in Christ and salvation, uh, that it, 
and salvation through Jesus is the free gift of God. So that's the source of faith, the free gift of God. Uh, they reference Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, but this is the free gift of God. In Philippians, Philippians 1.29, it says, To you it has been granted to believe in Christ. So granted, gift, given to you to believe. So that's the source of faith, is God's gift. Article 6 talks about God's eternal decree. And the, it says specifically, the fact that some receive from God the gift of faith within time and others do not stems from God's eternal decision. The gift of faith is God's eternal decision. His decrees determine man's faith, not man's faith determining God's decrees. Uh, Acts 15, 18 says, For God knows all his works from the beginning of the world. Ephesians 1, 11 says, He works all things, all things, after the counsel of his will. And in that section, too, it says, God graciously softens hearts, however hard, of his chosen ones and inclines them to believe, but by his just judgment he leaves them in their wickedness and hardness of heart those who have not been chosen. So God is passing over. He's not causing unbelief in the hearts of the unbeliever. He is causing faith in the heart of the believer. So it's causative for faith. And then I wanted to, I, I gave you uh, Article 7. We're going to read the whole thing. And we might just stop right here. Uh, Article 7, which is just entitled Election. And it's a long section. <clears throat> and this is what, think, and you might, as you think about Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, particularly here about, and we'll read it afterwards, um, and even what we just read in Romans 8. But this is, I mean, think of the biblical language that's used in this uh, section on election. Election is God's unchangeable purpose by which he did the following. By, before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, he chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race, which had fallen, this is about the human race, which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. Now he goes back to talk about the chosen. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than the others, but lay with them in the common misery. He did this in Christ whom he also appointed from eternity to be the mediator and the head. Sorry, I just looked at my watch. The head of all those chosen and the foundation of their salvation. And so he decided to give the chosen ones to Christ to be saved and to call and to draw them effectively into Christ's fellowship through his word and spirit. In other words, he decided to grant them true faith in Christ to justify them, to sanctify them, and finally, after powerfully preserving them in the fellowship of a son, to glorify them. God did all this in order to demonstrate his mercy, to the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. As scripture says, and here's the Ephesians 4, 
God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before Him with love. He predestined us whom He adopted as His children through Jesus Christ in Himself according to the good pleasure of His will to the praise of His glorious grace by which He freely made us pleasing to Himself in His beloved. And then He also says in Romans 8.30, those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. There's some weight here, and the biblical truth is great. Um, the Ephesians uh, 1, 4 through 6 part, I would just point out to you, at the very beginning of that, it says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that, so God has a purpose behind choosing people and electing them and saving them, and it says, so that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So, um, if one argues that they are elect and they have no uh, lifestyle marked by pursuing holiness, they're contrary to what the Scripture says. So, if you believe, if someone would believe in the doctrine of election and says, because I'm elect, I can live a profligate lifestyle, a lifestyle contrary to God's word and His commands, you're missing out on the purpose of election here. The purpose of election is for God to make people holy and blameless. So, that should drive us to worship God. Um, and I think that's important as we think about that, because some, some of the gross uh, mischaracterizations of Reformed theology is, hey, you're saved, you can do whatever you want. That's not true. You need to live a holy life. That's, that's, that's what election has done for you. The other thing is, um, other characterization of the Reformed faith is they're not gospel-sharing people. Well, the, uh, we're going to call them the Dortian divines. That's alliteration, right? It's good. The Dortian divines have already rejected that in Article 3, talking about how the necessity of the gospel to go out and be, be preached. So what I'm trying to say is the, the, the understandings of the Reformed faith and the things that sometimes are... Um, thrown at the Reformed faith are not indicative of the early Reformed faith, but there are some, some bad um, apples in the bunch that have spoiled uh, the Reformed faith. I will have to admit that, though. So, um, this is life-giving theology for us. All right. I, I put a note here in election. I just summarized that, whatever, 400 words, and I put, God decrees not just the end, but the means as well for election. Okay, I'm coming back to this, but I'll hold it in my hand. Um, Article 8, there's one single decision of election, and this is, there's cohesion in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is what the uh, the Dortian divines would say. Uh, Salvation is the same in the Old Testament as the New. There's not a discrepancy. Article 9, this is where they, these are their articles. They're not supposed to be doing rejections yet, but they do a rejection here. Election is not based on foreseen faith. Um, they expound in that part, part that if it is based on man's faith or his holiness or his decision, in their view, grace ceases to be grace. 
And God cannot exclusively receive the glory because there'd be an aspect of some of that being shared with man. Here they say that election is referred to as the fountain or the source of the benefits of salvation. So election is the fountain that flows out faith, holiness, and eternal life. Article 10 is election is based on God's good pleasure. I wanted to just stand up here and read this whole thing to you, but I had to pick and choose, but I'm going to read this section. Article 10, election based on God's good pleasure. But the cause of this undeserved election is exclusively the good pleasure of God. This does not involve His choosing certain human qualities or actions from among all those possible as a condition of salvation, but rather involves His adopting certain particular persons from among the common mass of sinners as His own possession. As the Scripture says, when the children were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, she, Rebekah, was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And then also, referencing Acts 13, 48, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So it wasn't who believed, received it. It's all who were appointed believed. So God appointed them before time, and they believed. So God's good pleasure in election. Election in Article 11 is defined as unchangeable, and that is following after the character of God who is unchanging. So his act of election does not change. Um, I also find uh, Article 12 at this point very encouraging, and it's on the assurance of election. And what they say is assurance comes to people in different ways at different times and in different doses. So Article 12 says, Assurance of their eternal and unchangeable election to salvation is given to the chosen in due time, though by various stages and in differing measure. Such assurance comes not by inquisitive searching into the hidden and deep things of God, but by noticing within themselves with spiritual joy and holy delight the unmistakable fruits of election pointed out in God's words, such as true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for their sins, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. Think about other things, though. You can add to that list, too. And those are the things he's pointing you to, the the Dortian divines are pointing you to, but that assurance comes differently to each person. I think you can find encouragement there. Um, 13, as we get through it, we are not going to get to the second point. I'm just going to go ahead and make that proclamation right now. So I'd like to apologize. (laughs) Article 13, the fruit of this assurance. So what does having assurance in your election do for you? The fruit is daily humility before God because of his mercy, thankful love for him. Also does not give you a license for sin. Those that are convinced of God's election of them should not be carnally self-assured, should not be living like the world. You should be living like how God would have you live. The elect should not have moral indifference. Instead, they should live lives of holiness. I would point you to Colossians 3, 
12, 13, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 11 as instructions there. And then, I, I don't think the Dorothean divines um, got into this not knowing this was a weighty topic. I think they really, they know that it is, and there's a lot of serious uh, discussion that can be around it. Um, so they give instructions in Article 14 um, about how to teach this doctrine. And they say it's to be taught for the following purposes. Um, it doesn't say to puff up the elect, by the way. It says it's to be taught with the following purposes, with reverence in the spirit of discretion and piety, for the glory of God's most holy name, and for the comforting of His people, without vainly attempting to investigate the ways of the Most High. Um, and that's where he appeals to Romans 11, um, where uh, if you look at Romans 11, 33 and 34, or 33, where Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? So kind of appealing in some ways to that. Um, Article 15 talks about the the doctrine of reprobation, so that's kind of the opposite of election. Um, Not all people are going to be saved. Um, And in this article, uh, the Dortian divines say that some have been passed by in God's eternal, eternal decree, left to pursue their sinful desires, and will receive justice for the sins they've committed against Him. And they outline that God is righteous. He's awful and an irreprehensible judge and an avenger. I don't know if you all remember when Keith preached on God being an avenger in Joshua. Um, That was staggering. And in all these things, God is not the author of sin. And that's one of the charges that the Arminians are leveling at the Reformed. They're saying, "By, by you talking about God electing some unto salvation... He's ultimately in control of all things. That's what you're saying, Reformed people. If you follow that logic long enough, they're going to say, well, that means God is the author of sin. He's causing sin in these people's lives. And, the, and it's important that we say that God is not the author of sin. And in God, there is no darkness. He's only pure and holy. Um, that, is, that is what needs to be um, mentioned here because that's the charge against the, uh, the Reformed. I would encourage you to read Article 16, because I don't have time to get into it, but it has three types of people are described in response to the teaching of reprobation, and I think it's a worthy endeavor to look at that, but I don't have time for that. Uh, Nor do I have time for Article 17, which concerns the salvation of the infants of believers. So, um, I, I think these words in here offer comfort for believers, but there's a lot more to get into there. Um, and there's some covenant theology language there about the covenant of grace, and uh, I invite you to look at that. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I could have had like a 15-week series, I guess, but I wasn't looking to do that. Um, So I must confess that was me. Article 18, um, it's the proper attitude toward election and reprobation. I'm going to go ahead and read that. The proper attitude, and he, they reference a couple of scriptures here. It says, To those who complain about this grace of an undeserved election and about the severity of a just, a just reprobation, 
we, we reply with the words of the apostle, who are you, O man, to talk back to God, Romans 9.20, and with the words of our Savior in Matthew 20.15, have I no right to do what I want with my own? We, however, with reverent adoration of these things, cry out with the apostle, and this is the Romans 11.33-36 that I just read, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God and all that. So that's the proper attitude towards understanding the doctrine of election and reprobation. All right, so then they've spelled out 18 articles about what this doctrine is. And then they set forth nine, um, there's kind of like nine statements about uh, what is being taught and what how the uh, Reformed Church is rejecting that. Um, and it clearly says in the heading of this section, these are the rejections of errors by which the Dutch church have for some time been disturbed. So the Dutch church is disturbed because these things have been taught. Um, and there's nine. Uh, I'm only going to look at rejection number six. And I made that decision before I knew I was going to run out of time. So. Um, so number six. So let's remember the, the precursor says, having set forth the orthodox teaching concerning election and reprobation, the synod rejects the errors of those. Okay, and then they list the errors. Number six particularly says, this might actually, I might have picked this one because it's the shortest. <laughs> oh, sorry to admit that. Those who teach that not every election to salvation is unchangeable, but that some of the chosen, chosen can perish and do in fact perish eternally with no decision of God to prevent it. So this is the idea that one could be saved and then not saved later. They're responding to that statement. And they say, by this gross error, they make, they're talking about what happens, what the Arminians do with that, or the remonstrance, whichever you want to refer to them as, by this gross error, they make God changeable, destroy the comfort of the godly concerning the steadfastness of their election, and contradict the Holy Scripture, which teach that elect, the elect cannot be led astray, that Christ does not lose those given to him by the Father, according to John 6, and those whom God has predestined, God called and justified, he also glorifies. So, uh, this, it's, it actually is a lot easier to explain the articles than the, uh, the rejections because there's a lot of weight in each of the rejections. Like each of these statements are filled with, this is what they've been saying. And it might not always be directly the remonstrance. There are other positions that they're um, going against as well here. Um, but that's, that'll get you... You're going to have to sit down for a while and read that, okay? You can't just uh, show up and start doing that. Okay, so it would be completely foolish at this point for me to talk about the doctrine of the atonement in 10 minutes. I don't think that would be really fair nor appropriate, um, but that means I'm only going to have, we'll, we'll work on my schedule for next week, so I'm going to call a mulligan and not do this right now. Um, but I, I, I would suggest, again, for like the fifth time, that you read this section, section 2 of the Canons of Dort to talk about the idea of, this is the Calvinist doctrine of limited atonement. Um, I like two other terms better than limited. I like definite, certainty, and I like particular. And I like, what I really like about particular is that it's particular to me. 
that it's personal. So Christ's atonement on the cross, here's the lead for next week, um, is particular for certain people. And then for me, it's personal to me. It's my sin that Christ bore the penalty for. So think about that as you read these doctrines. And then look at the scriptures that are, go along with it as well. Okay? Um, thank you for your time. And you get like... So when I used to work in an office setting, uh, and you have a conference call, and they schedule it from like 10 to 11, the person that would run the call, they'd let you out like at 1045. And they would say, guess what? I'm giving you 15 minutes back to your day. And I always joked with... Well, people I worked with, and I used to joke, like, who made them the arbiter of time? Or they like to get to give us more time, but I am the arbiter of time right now, because I'm going to give you about eight more minutes, okay? Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then there's a couple announcements I should make, probably. So, uh, Father, we come before you, and uh, we praise your name uh, for uh, the great free work of salvation that you've done. Um, by your sovereign uh, decrees, and Lord, uh, for that we give you praise. Oh Lord, I pray that uh, we would have a grander vision of you because we've considered these things. Lord, I pray that we would uh, desire to know your truth in your scriptures. Oh Lord, may we not uphold the fathers of Dort, but may we exalt uh, your word and Christ in it. Um, may that be our hearts today. Lord, I pray as we go to worship you, um, Lord, that you would uh, change our hearts, Lord. Lord, may you use the worship, um, our praying, our giving, and our listening to the scriptures preached, Lord. May you cause uh, growth in our lives. Lord, may we, be grow, may we grow more into the image of Jesus. Lord, make us a holier people for your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name I pray, amen.